Unknown Compelling Force, Episode 1, The Facts. Russia, on the edge of Siberia and the middle of the Cold War. Ten adventure skiers, eight men and two women, head out on a trek in the northern Ural Mountains. It is so bitterly cold that one of the college students, Yuri Yudin, who has bouts of rheumatism, suffers a chill and his bones ache so badly he is forced to turn around at the last village. This difficult choice will ultimately save his life. Now I'm going to skip to the end and you will understand why as we get going. The other nine hikers never returned. On February 26, their tent was discovered by a couple of members of a search group who had been looking for them for almost a week. The hope this discovery gave them was quickly replaced by myriads of questions, all of which we will explore in the episodes of this podcast. It will be determined by forensics that the tent was cut open by knives from the inside. The hikers then fled through the holes slashed in the side of the tent leaving almost all of their belongings behind. This includes their gear, food, shoes, and most of their clothes. In other words, they fled into the below zero wilderness wearing little but basically socks and underwear. The next day, following the frantic footprints down the hill toward the forest, the search team discover a fire pit under a cedar tree. And the first two bodies, those of Yuri Doroshenko and Yuri Kravonoshenko. Between the tree and the tent, they will also discover the bodies of Zineda Komolgorova and the group leader, Igor Dyatlov. It will be almost another week of searching before they uncover the body of Rustam Slobodin, fallen directly between Zina and Igor. All three of them were found with their heads directed toward the tent, as if they were making their way back. Zina had made it the furthest, but they had all succumbed to hypothermia. At this point, there is nothing incredibly surprising here. Some people were practically naked in below freezing weather and three to four feet of snow, and they died of hypothermia. While clearly tragic, there was no criminal element here. This all changed in early May when the thaw began and the other four bodies were found. These were Lyudmila Dubinina, Alexander Zoletarov, Alexander Kolevatov, and Nikolai Thibault Brignoles. Two of them had crushed ribs, one had a crushed skull, and Lyudmila was missing her tongue. And now that we have this complete end, we can begin. I'm curious how many people have heard this story, or at least this much of it. It has become increasingly more popular in the past few years, with a couple of reputable books a slew of less reputable books, and some increasingly sensationalized television episodes and films exploring different theories, or just some outlandish sci-fi extravaganzas. Let me state right now that this is not my goal. I don't intend to spin the drama into a more entertaining style or replace phrases like supports this theory into proves this theory Honestly, my ultimate goal is to produce an immersive theatrical event which allows the audience to explore the possibilities, probabilities, and impossibilities of this event, which has been deemed the Dyatlov Pass incident. This podcast is a different genre, and you are my first audience. I first learned about the Dyatlov Pass incident by quite literally stumbling upon it. By this I mean it popped up in my stumble upon queue 
as part of an article about strange deaths. The fact that this ended up in my queue speaks a little to my interests as well. For example, my father worked for an airline and every summer of my childhood, we would use our free passes to take a family vacation. The summer between my fourth and fifth grade year, my parents had decided on California. Where would most children this age want to go in California? I'm guessing you would say Disneyland. But if you found this podcast, maybe you're a bit more like me. Instead, I insisted upon visiting Alcatraz and the haunted Winchester Mansion. I was familiar with these places because these were the types of books I was renting from the school library. Much to my parents' credit, this is exactly where we went. So when I came across the Diatla Pass incident, I had little choice but to look into it further. This was about two years ago, and I just can't stop. So instead, I'm asking you to come along. As much as I appreciate mysteries, let me tell you what I can't stand about the telling of them. So often, so much time and effort is invested in the telling of the story only to end with, isn't that mysterious? And you find yourself having not moved an inch from where you began. Fair warning, I do not claim to have the truth about the cause of death of these hikers. The case was officially closed, citing the cause of death as an unknown compelling force. In fact, that is the title of this podcast, as well as the play I'm creating. The other aspect of the telling of a mystery, which I find irresponsible, is presenting only one theory as the truth, leaving little or no proof to support it, or worse, bending the truth to fit the theory. In this case, there are many possible theories which could be true, or even more likely, a combination of these theories could best describe what actually happened. Here I will do my best to represent all of the current theories as they are passionately proposed. The play, An Unknown Compelling Force, will allow for twists and turns in the story as the audience is asked to choose the answer to specific questions where different theories posit opposing solutions. Did the men climb the cedar tree to escape an immediate threat or to have a better view of something in the distance? Based on audience input throughout the evening, a very specific story will emerge. If you want to try another story, come back tomorrow. In this way, the audience will remain invested and the story will be alive. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I suppose that comes as no surprise since we've started at the end. In the following episodes, we will begin to work our way back to the beginning and the real question, which is why did the Diatlov group cut and run in the first place? I think it is important to acknowledge from the beginning that this is more than just an intriguing story. This is in fact a true story, a tragedy even, which involves real people. Out of respect to them and their loved ones, I would like to begin by introducing you to the members of the Diatlov group. You've heard of little of this already, but as I introduce them, I will also begin referring to them by their nicknames. This is going to be easier for us Americans in the long run. I once read Dr. Javago aloud in its entirety, so my grasp of Russian names and accents has been tested, but I'm not all that sure I passed. We should also acknowledge that the number of survivors who are a direct link in this story, the members of the search party, the investigation, and the friends and family of the hikers is dwindling which makes this exploration a timely and important venture, I think. Someone out there has the truth, or many someones with small bits of information, if pieced together, could get us there. We can hope. I will start in the most obvious place, and that is with the group leader, the namesake, Igor Dyatlov, 
who we will refer to from now on as Igor. Many of the hikers were students at the Ural Polytechnic Institute, or UPI. Igor was 23 years old, a fifth year student of radio engineering, and was by all accounts a natural at building shortwave radios. It is said that the walls of his room at home were covered in parts as well as completed systems. Personal radios had been long forbidden in the Stalin era, but now in the midst of the thaw, as they refer to the relaxing of human rights under Khrushchev, it was less dangerous to be found with a stockpile of radios or even in possession of one on a trip. Igor had been known to take radios on trips before, as well as supply radios to other hikers and communicate with them from their respective locations. You may now start to wonder why it was that he had not brought a radio on this particular trip. It is easy as we get into this story to go down many roads of what ifs. Feel free to venture off. But ultimately, we have no choice but to hike back up the hill to the facts. The what if is the best way I can think of to describe regret. There are so many tiny things we could have done differently in our lives. If I had left my house two minutes earlier, I wouldn't have had that car accident. If I had chosen red instead of black, I would have won the jackpot. And they go the other way. If I had never gone through that divorce, I would never have met my soulmate. The fact is, sometimes life is what it makes of us. And we can only make our best, most informed decisions and try to always do what we think is right in the moment, even if information we learn later teaches us differently. But back to Igor and his radios. We wonder how things would have been different had Igor brought a radio on this trip. But to better understand why he chose not to, you would need to know a little more about these radios and the challenge ahead of them. First of all, we have to stop thinking in 2014 and get back to 1959, long before iPhones and even before Walkmans. You couldn't buy a shortwave radio in 1959. You had to build them. And build them, Igor did. The average weight of one of these radios was 100 pounds. It's not something you just throw in your bag and carry all day. As for the trip, they had chosen the most difficult possible route, considered grade three for this trek. In fact, had they succeeded, they would have earned the highest level of hiking certification through their club. This certification required that they achieve specific tasks, including spending at least six nights in a tent in the elements, eight nights in the wilderness, and covering a minimum of 186 miles, at least a third of which must be considered challenging. To hear tales of Igor's skills as a hiker, one might assume that there could be some exaggeration which glorified his prowess after the event. He is spoken of as the best hiker, leading the most coveted groups at the university. To hike with Igor was to join the elite. Supporting this praise, though, does follow the fact that when Dyatlov group did not send word of their return by the date they were expected, there was no real panic. Beyond some concerned family members, those who knew him as a hiker felt so little concern that they, in fact, did not start the investigation until more than a week after the group was expected to check in. Although this is frustrating and a bit ridiculous knowing what we know now, I can also relate. I'm a bit of an adventurer myself, and while I haven't ventured into Siberian winter or Arctic tundra, 
I have certainly taken some solo trips and ill-advised hikes, one of which actually resulted in me falling off a cliff. My mother is a constant wreck during these times and spends a good majority of her quiet time in silent prayer with whatever or whoever she has deemed to be my guardian angel. All that being said, she also knows that I can take care of myself. In Igor's case, not only was he considered to be more than capable of taking care of himself, he was able to take care of his team. The worst that anyone anticipated at this point was that someone had sprained their ankle and slowed the group to a hobble, which would eventually be brought back in the safe company of the school's most capable leader. Igor was also a lover of photography and his camera found at the scene and the film inside has provided us with a visual tour of their adventure. I will attach some of these pictures here and in future posts. On a more personal note, Igor was said to have been thoughtful, not rash, and had possibly started a romantic relationship with the female member of the group who everyone seemed endeared by, Zena. Zineda Komogorova, Zina, 22 years old, was also a student of radio engineering in her fourth year at UPI. Whether she meant to or not, she was a charmer. In fact, when the group was stranded for a day in a mining town en route, they got some warm refuge in an elementary school in exchange for spending the afternoon teaching the children about ski tourism. They told stories and erected a tent. And when the hikers train arrived and they were finally able to continue with their journey, many of the students were in tears, begging for Zena to stay with them. It is no surprise that a beautiful, strong, and confident young woman would be so attractive in so many ways. She was known as strong-willed. In fact, on another hiking venture, she had been bitten by a viper and kept going till the end. Zena was rumored to be flirting a bit with a member of the Blinov hiking group, which was shadowing the Dyatlov group on trains and buses in the beginning of their trip. It is also said that she had a previous relationship with one of the other members of the Dyatlov group, Yuri Doroshenko. As this starts to sound a little like a soap opera, let me remind you again, these are real people, real college students at that, which makes none of this melodramatic. Back to Yuri Doroshenko, 21 years old, who we will refer to as Doroshenko. Sorry, I haven't found a simpler nickname for this guy. I also don't have a whole lot of information on him. He was also a student of radio engineering. There is no chatter about him in the group journal or much mention of him I have found in my research. All I have found was that he was in a relationship with Zena and had even gone to meet her parents in commence. Perhaps he did not have the personality of a sort that could make him stand out, which could explain the demise of the relationship with Zena, who could have outshone him a bit too strongly. I don't know. I think he's cute. Doroshenko was one of the original bodies discovered under the cedar tree in the company of Yuri Krivonoshenko, often referred to as Georgie. Georgie was 23 years old and was studying engineering at UPI and I believe was slated to graduate this year or had just graduated. An interesting bit of Georgie's history is that he was involved in the cleanup of a radioactive leak caused by an accident at the secret nuclear facility of Kustomkoi in 1957, 
This should also serve to remind us that this is the midst of the Cold War, and the prevalence of radioactive materials and nuclear testing is going to be an important element of some present theories. Georgie seems represented in the group journal as the merry minstrel of the group, often breaking out his mandolin at the dreariest of moments to bring joy to the group. He was so gregarious that he was even hauled off to jail for what I relate to disturbing the peace at one of the train station stops, but managed to get released with a warning, which only speaks more to his seemingly pleasant demeanor. The other member of the group who was among the first bodies recovered was Rustem Slobodin, Rustic, 23 years old, was a recent graduate of UPI with a degree in mechanical engineering. Rustic also played the mandolin, and his father was a professor at a nearby university. He has been described as athletic and sometimes quiet, but honest and decent. It seems kind of baseline, but let's assume that decent means respectable as opposed to just acceptable. This is a lot of characters already, so let's just take a second and check in before we get to the final four who were found in May. So far we have the leader, Igor, the leading lady, Zena, the ex-boyfriend, Doroshenko, the merry minstrel, Georgie, and the quiet and decent, Rustic. A combination of friends, students, lovers, and adventurers. While Rustic did suffer a skull fracture, it was considered non-fatal and all of these young people had died of hypothermia. Now we get to the final four members of the group who were discovered more than two months later. We will start with Nicolai Thibault Brignoles. How's my French? Um, 23 years old, who we're going to refer to as Nikki. But before we get too comfortable with that new name, Let's acknowledge that one of these things is not like the other. Nikki's father was actually a French communist who had been executed in the Stalin years. In fact, Nikki was born in a concentration camp for political prisoners. Nikki had since attended UPI and graduated in 1958 with a degree in civil engineering. He was known to be incredibly helpful and would assist others on hikes, whether that meant fixing their pack or carrying it for them. He was known to be full of energy and fun as well as funny. Nikki's death was caused by massive internal injuries, specifically a crushed skull. He had promised his mother this would be his last hiking trip. Found along with Nikki was Alexander Kolevatov, 24 years old and a student of nuclear physics at UPI. I have found that he is sometimes referred to as Sasha K, but there is another Sasha you are about to meet, so to avoid confusion, we will refer to him as Alex. Although Alex was a fourth year student of nuclear physics, he had also studied metallurgy of heavy non-ferrous materials at the Svedlovsk Mining and Metallurgy College. I must admit, I had to look this one up. I started with scholarly articles and quickly skipped to more layman explanations. Non-ferrous refers to a process of extraction creating raw materials out of ore or something like that. Regardless, combine this with his connection to the Research Institute of Inorganic Materials and add the talk that this institution was producing material for the nuclear industry and we're back to the connection to the Cold War and nuclear weaponry. Beyond his work and studies though, Alex was considered diligent and methodical and seen by his peers as a leader. At one point on this trip, 
Alex literally missed the bus. He had wandered off at a rest stop and the group didn't notice he was missing until they had all piled in and were on their way. Alex was so determined he refused to be left behind and ran to catch the bus. Curiously, Alex was the only member of this final group who was deemed to have died from hypothermia and managed to avoid whatever had injured his comrades so badly. One of the most striking elements of this story when I first heard it, and the bit that seems to catch others off guard, is the missing tongue. This was Ludmilla Duvenina, or Liuda, a mere 20 years young, and a third year student of engineering and economics at UPI. She was generally considered outspoken, and some in the future will wonder if this in some way explains that she was the one who was missing her tongue. Liuda took many of the pictures for the group, while she did not seem as popular as Zena, she was respected for being a good communist and a reliable hiker. An interesting metaphor of what I think Luda's place must have been like in the group is that when they were on a train and the train conductor came by, they had not bought as many tickets as they had members of the group. And so Luda would actually hide underneath the seat when the conductor came by. On an earlier expedition, she had been accidentally shot in the leg by another hiker mishandling a hunting rifle. She managed to make her way through the rest of the trek without complaint and in fact felt sorry for causing trouble for the group. On this trip, she would not be able to overcome the injuries sustained by her crushed ribs. The last member of this group, and he was indeed the last member to join, as he met up with the group on the train at the first leg of the trip, was Semyon Zolotaral the one often referred to as Sasha. Sasha is more of an outlier to this group and was even a surprise addition to all of the members except for Igor who had allowed him to come along. Originally, Sasha had planned on traveling with another group during the winter trip, but asked to be switched to Igor's team. Sasha was a hiking instructor and interested in earning his grade three certification. Though he was quickly brought into the fold partly due to the vast well of songs he could draw from to accompany Georgie's mandolin, he was clearly very different. Sasha was 37 years old when they started out. He may have reached 38, as the evening and morning of the incident was Sasha's birthday. He was also covered in tattoos, which was rare at this time and place, unless you had served in the war, which Sasha had from 1941 to 1946. Sasha was not a student of UPI, but had joined the Communist Party after the war and transferred to the Leningrad Military Engineering University. Later, he would transfer again to the Meeks Institute of Physical Education and later become a tourist guide in Artibash on the southern edge of Siberia. His picture and his story speak of strength in body and resolve, but he would also succumb to internal injuries and crushed ribs. So these are the other four. Nikki the Frenchman, Alex the metallurgist, Liuda the outspoken communist, and Sasha the soldier. I'm not trying to reduce their personality to caricatures by any means, but hope to have given you some small insight into their lives and an easier way of remembering who each of them are. It is important that they should be remembered. And beyond the mystery of this tragedy, but as sons and daughters, friends and lives. In fact, before we close this introduction, we can't forget the other member of the group we mentioned at the beginning. Yuri Yudin, the one who turned around 
and the sole survivor of the Dyatlov group. Yuri was 21 years old in 1959. He was a student of geology at UPI. When I first became interested in the story, I immediately began to search for Yuri Yudin in hopes of someday talking to him. I imagine I'm not the only one who had this hope, and that is probably why he was not easy to find. In fact, the first thing that finally popped up in my search was the announcement that Yuri Yudin had died. This was April of 2013. Yuri was 75 years old. During an interview with Yudin in the early years following the Dyatlov Pass incident, he is quoted as saying, if I could ask God one question, it would be, what really happened to my friends that night? And that is where we will start next time on an unknown compelling voice.